<laughs> Wayne's known me too long. He knows that that's probably not the case. What we're going to get today is the Cliff Notes version of what you were going to get. We'll see what God does. I uh, genuinely appreciate all that, that Lynn had to say. If you'll take your hand out and look at it for just a moment, everybody have one? Wave them so I'll see if you got one. All right. Should be on. Hang on while I get dressed. No, I'm going to do it without, either they get it working or they don't, because I can't. Y'all can hear me, right? I'll yell if I need to. I have a somewhat of a loud mouth. I know you find that hard to believe. But thinking about on, on a family, family Sunday, and what I want us to do, I want you to take your hand out and look. It says, how then do we live? And I want you to turn to 1 Peter at the end of the Bible, let's go to the book of Concordance and back up a little bit. 1 Peter, chapter 5. And this is somewhat of a devotional thing that I was doing in my own life. And a lot of difficult things uh, over the last year and a half with, with the pandemic uh, in our own personal life, with Mary being just uh, so sick. And uh, particularly in the fall, up to the, uh, from Thanksgiving to January, uh, we spent so much time at Baptist Hospital, they, they gave me an office, and they'd already named the heart wing after me, and now they, I have, we have an office in ER as well. And just constantly going in, having to get fluid, and, and, and God just, whoa, something. Yes, Lord. I will get to the message. <laughs> You're a good, good father. Thank you. So, and in realizing, and then we had a, a dear uh, young man in, in our family at Arlington, 44 years old, three children under the age, four children under the age of 15, and he got COVID-19 and was gone. And we could go around the room right now and just sharing testimonies. Every one of you has either had a death in the family, you're dealing with cancer, uh, you're, you're hurting in some way. And God just kept bringing me back. And this is something that happened to me. I'm thinking about uh, Gabby and Brandon graduating from high school and, and beginning that. In, and I loved my four years in college. Absolutely loved it. My son, who's 77, recently graduated, or at least it feels that way. My son's 34. And he just graduated, got his master's degree at the University of Memphis, uh, which is, uh, Gabby, good choice at God's University. He just got his master's degree at age 34, and so we, and I won't go through that story because it would take forever with the traffic and everything. We got in the stadium just in time to see him walk across the stage and then left. We were in Liberty on maybe five minutes, but he, he graduated, got his, his master's degree, and so we're in the parking lot. We're going to take pictures. He goes, yeah, I'm the, I'm the only Lockley that's got a master's degree, and I said, yeah, but I'm the only Lockley who's a doctor. <laughs> Don't you ever forget that. He goes, you didn't earn that doctorate. I said, oh, yes, I did. I raised you. I have a doctorate in tough. So, but as a family of God, I think it, it is vital that we understand the culture that we live in. I want you to turn to 1 Peter and put your hand out there. 
Now I want you to flip to 1 John. We had to do something in John because it would be wrong if I did not. This is not the Gospel of John, however, this is his first epistle, which is two books to the right of 1 Peter, or just type it in on your handheld device. But I want you to look at 1 John chapter 3, and we're going to go right back to 1 Peter. And I don't care how old you are, I want us to spend the next few moments together focusing on what does God say to me and to us corporately as his family, his children, Jesus' bride, the body of Christ, Jesus' church. What is it that God says to us about being the family of God on our family Sunday? And I love having children here. I love hearing that sound, and it's important. Like those stats that Lynn was sharing. Without a doubt, it is vital that we as adults understand the significance of pouring ourselves into children, even if they're not our own, while they're children. What got me involved in ministry in the first place in my life, I was in college. I'd been saved about three years. And the church that I was at, it was a mega church, big church, and, and it's where I got saved, where we got married, and Mary was singing, and she's very involved in the music ministry, and, and I was just there and just being cool because that's who I was. And they kept saying, we need help with, with junior high boys. We need someone to teach junior high or seventh grade boys. We've got a group nobody wants to spend, and nobody wants to hang out with seventh grade boys. I understand that. But I, you know, I tried, and this is a true story, and Wayne knows my brother-in-law, who was the minister of worship at this church, and so I said, well, I'll go sing, because that's where Mary is, and, and, and so I'll sing. And I sang one Sunday, and he came to me and said, Randy, perhaps you might find another place to serve. <laughs> In the midst of like 80 people, I, apparently I really stood out, as this is not where you need to be. And so he said, why don't you try? They really need some help. He was also doing youth. He said, they really need some help with seventh grade boys. Why don't you try that? And I said, okay, I need to try that. And here's what I discovered. And again, young Christian, never been trained, really didn't know much. Uh, I didn't grow up in a Christian home, but I'd been saved about three years, and I'd been in church. What I discovered was that little group of boys, when I began to pour myself into them, we didn't have any children at the time, and... and We'd been married just a few months, and I, what I discovered was I really cared about them. Total strangers to me prior to that, that time. And I also discovered I loved teaching the Bible to them and having them look at me like, what are you talking about? And then to be able to learn, and I was motivated to learn myself, so when they asked questions like, what does God look like? I could say, I don't know. And one of them said, when I'm drawing a picture of him, when I get through, you'll know what he looks like. That old dope. And, but what I discovered was I loved teaching them. I loved spending time with them. I loved calling them up. I loved bringing them over my house to rake leaves because I got free labor. <laughs> I discovered, and this is the principle, and why I encourage Lynn should never have to ask for help. People ought to be beating her office door down to help. Same thing with student ministry in every arena. Here's why. If you want to be the most fulfilled as a believer in Jesus Christ, without question, Jesus himself made it clear, here's when you'll find your greatest fulfillment, when you're doing something for someone else. It's called serving. 
Now, we beat the word up, and I know we talk about it all the time, but I promise you from personal experience, I would not be standing here today if I have not discovered my spiritual gift was teaching through those seventh grade boys. By just saying, here's a, they needed somebody to teach them the Bible, I didn't even know where to start. And God got me involved in their life. And then before I knew it, I was teaching high school. Before I knew it, I was running the high school program for them. And it was huge. And I loved it as a, as a volunteer, a ministry partner. I had a job, and soon we had children. But I just kept doing it, and kept doing it, and kept doing it. And one day, God brought me here to do it full time. You're not signing up for the rest of your life. You're just simply saying, how can I help a little bit? Maybe it's one week a month. Maybe it's one Wednesday night. Who knows? What you will discover, you may not necessarily love hanging out with children, but what you will discover is you love the blessing that you're going to get out of doing it. You, you are. Now look at 1 John 3, verse 1. Verse 1. John says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. And if you notice in your Bible, the end of that sentence is an the punctuation is what? It's an exclamation point. So here's what John's saying. <clears throat> you may not be glad my microphone is working at this moment, so hang with me. He's saying, Woo! <laughs> Can you believe that God loved us enough to let us be his children? You know what John called himself? Anybody know his nickname? Disciple whom Jesus loved. And what he didn't mean by that was, hey, look here, I got to hang out. The rest of you, I know you know Jesus, you saw him do some miracles. Listen, I was at the transfiguration, which is pretty cool, by the way. I was with him in Gethsemane when he was praying and sweating blood. I got to be there. I'm somebody. That's not what he meant at all. You know what he meant? I cannot believe he loves me. Amen. He loves me. And he says to me, I want you to go into all the world and make disciples of mine. Bring people into the fold. And by the way, this is exactly the way Jesus looks at you and me. That commission has not changed. Now, look at the rest of that verse. Therefore, because we are the children of God, therefore the world doesn't know us. They don't understand us. That's all right. That's cool. Because I didn't know him. Beloved, we're the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed or comes back, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. In other words, now go over to 1 Peter. The great hope of the church, and we all know it, is what? Jesus is coming back. We call it the blessed hope. He's coming back. And we will reign with him as joint heirs in Christ. Another whole sermon we won't get into exactly what that means. It's, amaz it's amazing. If you're married to somebody, you inherit, you have everything together. Joint heirs with Christ. We, we, we are his bride. We will reign with him and inherit everything with him. That's why John says stuff like, I can't believe he loved me. I can't believe every day, and this is where you should be in your life, that you get to wake up, I get to wake up, and we get to go out into a culture that is anti-Christ, 
it is not pro-Christ. Our culture is anti-Christ. That we get to go out into that culture every day and say, let me tell you who Jesus really is. Lynn made a great point, and it's so true. Kids today, many of them don't even know who Jesus is. They don't even know the basics that we understand because we're Christians and we're in church, and many of you have been in church your whole lives, and you, and you understand the basics. There are a lot of adults that don't even understand those things. I'm doing a funeral this coming Saturday of an 80-year-old man, and his family's been in our church, and I've known for years, years and years. 80 years old, and his son called me, and he was diagnosed with cancer, and his son called me and said, my dad would like to talk to you. This was back in March. I went out to their house, and sat down, went in and sat down and talked with him. You know what he kept saying over and over? This is an 80-year-old man. You know what he kept saying over and over? I want to be born again. I want to be born again. I want to be born again. He had called me to come to his house to beg me to get saved. I have goosebumps even thinking. And we went out. I prayed with him. We received Christ. We went out. It's cold. Went out in the backyard and I baptized him in the hot tub. Amen. You know what? Best baptism I've ever been part of. He and his wife both. Got down the hot tub with them. They had, you know, had clothes on, and we just all got in the hot tub, and I baptized him. And then recently, he was in ICU, getting sick, worse and worse. And I will never forget this moment. I came up to church two Sundays ago. I'm out in the parking lot just talking to people as we're leaving. And his daughter-in-law comes up to me and says, I want to show you a picture. Is show me a picture of a father-in-law sitting in ICU with his little table up, has his laptop open, and he's watching me preach. Even right now, that moment will never leave me. You know what God said to me in that moment? What you do matters. Amen. Not because you're a preacher, because you're a Christian. What you do matters. Amen. Whether it's an 80-year-old man and how rare that is, it is rare. Or it's an eight-year-old kid. We are the children of God. John was screaming it. Peter is about to scream it. We ought to wake up every day in a very righteous way, be proud of the fact God has called us. You're in full-time Christian service whether you know it or not. It's not just those of us that are on the payroll we all are. Every believer is a priest, and every believer is called to full-time Christian service. How do we do that? Let me give you the Cliff Notes version of 1 Peter 5. 5. Turn there, please. 5. 5. In the meantime, until Jesus returns, or until he takes us home, individually, how do we corporately and individually in the middle of a difficult culture, in the middle of satanic attack, in the middle of issues and problems. We believe that Romans 8.28 is true. One of the things I know about Mr. Wynn passing away and me doing his funeral Saturday, God tells me in Romans 8.28 that he's always working good. One of the good things that happened with him, this happening to him, is that it's motivated me even more to share my faith every opportunity I get. Same thing with a young man that was 44 years old that passed away. With all those young, I've spent time talking to every one of his children since then. I wasn't doing that before. 
because it matters. It matters. The context of 1 Peter is written in eight, just before AD 64 when they were, Nero sits, sets Rome on fire, blames it on the Christians, and the persecution that's about to hit the, the church of Jesus Christ, the first century church, is about to begin. And Peter's writing just prior to that. This persecution that began in AD 64 after what Nero had done and blamed on Christians lasted 300 years. And what the early church did during that time of intense persecution all over the Roman Empire is they turned the world upside down, the Bible says, and they Christianized it in the middle of persecution. Peter was martyred. Paul was martyred. On and on. In the middle of this intense persecution, they were able to cope. So 1 Peter is simply written by Peter. It's a masterpiece of encouragement. He even says to them in there, the fiery trial you're about to endure. He didn't know exactly what was about to happen, but he says, it's okay, it's only temporary. As difficult as things may be in your life right now, in some cases it's really hard, I know that. Here's what God says. I'm working something good. You may not see it till you get to eternity, but I promise you, I'm working something good. How do we deal with it? How do we live in the midst of, in the meantime, until Jesus comes back. Number one, the first thing we do is we have to understand submission. Anytime you hear that word, it's kind of the S word in church. It's the one you don't use, submission. Because men like to use it to tell women to keep their mouths shut and do what they're told, which, by the way, the Bible never says that. So let's look at 1 Peter 5, 5. Submission. Likewise, younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you, be submissive to one another. Please do not miss that statement. All of you, be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The context is, he's beginning, and we're not going to do elders today because we just don't have time. But the context is, he's talking about Number one, be submissive to your elders, assuming you have elders that are worth submitting to. And he gives, he gives that principle. Here's why I'm excited about serving at Christ Church as an elder. Is I know the men that I serve with. I've been here 37 years. I know the men that I serve with, whether it's Brother John or Chris or Marcus or uh, Rhett, on and on, our elders. Their desire is to be truthful through the Word of God, to live and model Jesus Christ, and to do what's right in the eyes of God. So he says, both things are true here. Be submissive to those kind of elders and follow them, encourage them, so that the gospel can be spread and it can be real. But then he says to everyone, and it's the reason I love this statement, be submissive and understand, be clothed in humility. Number one, to each other. On your handout is to your fellow believers. To your fellow believers. Notice, younger people, the older people. Both the elders is the immediate context, but also respect for those that are older than you that are wiser than you. Now that I am an old person, I understand many times that the respect that should be there is not. 
but that's only part of it. Notice what he says, be submissive to one another. It's also the elders to the sheep. That we all are humble. And notice the phrase that is used there, he's quoting from the Old Testament. Be clothed in humility. Philippians 2, talking about Jesus Christ, says to us first, have this attitude or mindset in you which was in Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. In other words, he was God. Yet he made himself of no reputation, took the form of a bondservant, and came in the likeness of men, chose to be a servant, chose to be a man. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Remember now, he's almighty, eternal, creator, God. He humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. He humbled himself, submitted himself to the Father. By the way, Jesus was equal with the Father, yet he submitted himself to the will of the Father to teach us the understanding of what true submission was, clothed himself in humility and said, not only will I die, I will die the most torturous death any human being has ever devised to kill another human being, crucifixion. I'll choose that one because what does it say to me and you? I love you so much, I'll die for you this way. I'll pay your sin debt this way. He clothed himself, he chose. It's a mindset or an attitude. So humility for us begins with submission to the Father. We'll talk about that in a moment, like Jesus did. But then it's submission to each other. That the mindset is, God saved me, left me on this planet to be your servant. To be unselfish, to be sacrificial, to always look, like if you're, if you're working with seventh grade boys or, or anyone else, whatever group it might be, or any individual, one-on-one, that you're looking at that person or you're looking at that group and you're saying, what can I do to enhance your spiritual life? What can I do for you? How can I help you? How can I come alongside like the Holy Spirit and be there for you in your time of need? Never about me. You know what the word humility means in the New Testament? The Greeks did not even have a word for it. The Romans and that culture, they looked at it as weak, as spineless. They didn't have a word for it. What it really means is, I don't think of myself at all. I think of you. And Jesus modeled that for us. Quick example, and then we'll move on. The very night in the upper room discourse, John 13 begins. That night, Jesus, Jesus, the Bible, John 13 says, Jesus realizing that his hour had come, that he kept saying, my hour's not yet come, my hour's not yet come, my hour, it gets there, my hour has come. Time to go to the cross. Knowing where he's headed for. The Bible says he endured the joy that was set before him. Not the joy and the happiness of getting, woo, I get to be crucified. No, the joy of realizing he was about to pay for our sins so that we could be redeemed, his bride. He was about to purchase his bride. Amen. We're part of that. Realizing that at that moment he had those 11 guys in the room that he was going to tell the king, he's going to give them the principles of the kingdom, John 13 through 17. 
What's the first thing he did after it says that? He got up from the table, got down on his hands and knees, and did what? Wash their feet. Wash their feet. And then he said, if I, your Lord and Master, do this, you do what? Likewise. Go serve each other. I am God. I am your servant. And you serve each other. As I told you a moment ago, you know when you'll find your fulfillment as a believer? When you're serving someone else. Always. You willingly put aside your pride. And you put on humility. That's what you, those are the clothes that you wear. The Bible calls the robes of righteousness. You identify with Christ. You be clothed with humility. Put it on. You wear it. Next point, verse 5, 6. Therefore, verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Jesus put it this way. The last shall be first and the first shall be last. Submission always begins, verse 5 into verse 6. It always begins. I will not be submissive to you, and I will not be humble before you until I'm submissive to whom? God, my Father. They were asking Jesus, teach us how to pray. What did he say? Talking about the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Not mine, yours. In everything I pray for, it is, Lord, what do you want? Now, Lord, I want to do that. I want to, I want to honor you. I want to glorify you. I want to hallow you, set you aside as holy, and let people see that in my life as an individual, in our life corporately as a church. You submit to your Heavenly Father. It begins with that. You want to have patience in your life? You say, Lord, give me patience. Well, you have patience if you're submissive, submissive to the Father because you're trusting Him. Not yourself. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Be patient. Now look at verse 7. So it all begins with submission. On a practical level. Now in your life, verse 7. Point 2 in your handout. Casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. This is the verse that God led me to. That was the genesis of this message after that young man died. Cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. In many of your cases, the cares are just an overwhelming burden. What did Jesus say about your burdens? Come unto me, all you laboring or heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. I am your Sabbath. That means rest. Bring it to me. I care. I empathize. The Bible says he's, he was tempted in every way we are, yet without sin. He understands. He empathizes. He sympathizes. He's our high priest. And he said, just bring it to me. I love you. What's Peter saying? Cast your care on the Father because he cares. In the interim, until Jesus comes back, our anxieties, our cares, our pressures, he said, bring them to me. I care about you. I'm going to take care of you. You may not understand how I'm doing it, but I promise you I am. If you read Philippians closely, and not just Philippians, but that, that book meant so much to me. But in Philippians, it makes it clear, and God gave me real victory it's over worry in the middle of reading that book. Because Philippians clearly taught me worry is a sin. Do I ever worry? 
Let's put my hand up. The answer is, yes, I do. But now I realize it's a sin. God says, Jesus you know, taught them, if I take care of the sparrows, I'm not going to take care of you. Look how beautifully all those things are arrayed. and I'm going to take care of you. Not necessarily, a lot of false teachers out there, not necessarily are they going to take care of me in the way I want God to take care of me. They're going to take care of me how? God's way is the best way. He does not make mistakes. Amen. So I had to be okay with that. And for those that preach, all you have to do is have enough faith and you'll have everything you want. You can't find that in the Bible. Therefore, it's not biblical, it's not spiritual, it's not godly. What God says, bring them to me and I'll take care of you. For example, we could go around the room and everyone can bring your tax statement. I think that's what we'll do next Sunday. Just everybody bring your taxes for last year. You know what you'll notice? Some of you make more money than other people. Some of you make less. wonder why that is. Because God provides as he sees fit. Yet no matter how much I make, what does God expect me to do? Honor him. It's all his. Amen. He distributes it as he wills. Same thing with spiritual gifts. Bring your cares to me because I care. Number two, surrender your cares to your heavenly father. Jesus said, don't worry about your life. Your heavenly father knows what you need. Paul said, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer, Philippians. One of the things that really I love about the word casting, in Greek, here's what it means. You've got something that's really heavy that you're trying to get somewhere. And what you do is you take it over here and you, you get some oxen and you cast it on them. Because they can what? They can carry the load. That's what the word means in Greek. They're capable of carrying the load that you can't carry. So cast it on them. What is God telling you? I can carry your load. I am able. Give it to me. And let me show you what I can do. Cast it on me. See, in a culture, you mentioned earlier, that's anti-Christ, what do they need to see more than anything else? They need to see Christians that are real, Amen. that are trusting God. One of the things I love about Christ Church is the loving, caring people that we have at both campuses. And when someone hurts, we want to help. We want to bear that burden. And our world needs to see that. They need to understand who our God is. Here's what he'll give you. Just quickly, I'll give it to you. They're on your handout. If you want them, you'll have them. If not, you can throw it away on your way out. There's a garbage can right here. Okay. God says, bring them to me. Here's what I'm going to do for you. Number one, I'm going to give you courage to face your circumstances. Courage. Isaiah 41 says, fear not. I'm with you. Don't be dismayed. I'm your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Our God is not some impersonal man upstairs, the, the big guy in the sky. Our God is personal. Amen. He's our, that's the reason he uses words like father, brother, sister, bride, personal, relational terms. God says, my righteous right hand. I'm omnipotent. 
You bring it to me. I will uphold you. I am your God. He's going to give you the courage to face whatever those circumstances are. Secondly, he'll give you the wisdom to understand them. James says, any of you lacks wisdom, ask, God, ask it of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. And the context of that passage is you're going to have daily trials. Daily, you're going to face difficulties. And God says, come to me. I give you the wisdom. That means to see things the way God sees them, to deal with what you face every day. Courage to face your circumstances. Wisdom to understand them. Third, strength to act in your circumstances. Verse everybody loves to quote, and they had to have printers on their wall somewhere, and you see it all the time. Philippians 4.13 says what? I do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can't tell you how many bad sermons I've heard on that verse. You know what that verse really means? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It said I can face everything that I've got to face, and I can get through it, but Christ is my capacity to do so. That's what it means. Not I can do anything I want to because I'm a Christian. You can't. You're not walking on water. But your God did. You're, there are no faith healers. I can't heal anybody, but my God can. Amen. He'll give you the capacity because he is your capacity. It does not mean it's going to work out every time the way you want it to work out. It means He's your capacity, you bring it to him, and then you leave it there. You trust him. And then the last one there is your faith to trust him. Psalm 55 says, cast your burden on the Lord. He will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. A couple other quick points and we're done. Look at verse 8. Verse 8. Be sober. Be vigilant. This is point three on your handout. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Amen. Resist him. Steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. We have to stay alert. Satan only wants one thing for the church. And I'm talking about those who are genuinely born again, not just people who attend church. People who know Christ, who are born again, he simply wants us not to be effective. Amen. He wants us fighting with each other over stupid things, things that don't matter, things that are not that important, like masks and vaccines and non-essential things like who, you know, mode of baptism. He wants division. He wants schisms. Read the, uh, Paul's epistle to the church at Corinth, his first one. He wrote to them because they were dividing up and fighting over whether Paul was better or Peter was better or was Apollos better or maybe Jesus was better. They would just spend all their time fighting. The world sees that and says what? I don't need that. I got enough fighting at home or at the office. They need to see that we are unified. They need to see that we are one. They need to see that we care about each other. They need to see, you no, know, we don't look alike. And no, we're not going to agree on every little non-essential. That's fine. We have to stay focused on the prize. Amen. One thing I do, Paul said, in, by the way, in Philippians. One thing I do, I press on. Why? And the older I get, the more I understand this. I don't have enough time to mess around with stuff that doesn't matter because people are dying and they need Christ. Amen. And I'm not going to spend my time fighting. I'm just not. 
What I love about this church is we stand for the word of God. We're going to preach the truth. We're going to speak the truth in love. And then we're going to go share Christ. We're not going to spend all our time fighting over non-essentials. We're just not going to do it. So we have to stay alert, realizing who our enemy is. Realizing all he wants for me, all he wants for us, is to keep us focused on ourselves. And not on Christ. Scott Jones and I love a man named Wayne Barber. And Scott and I have talked about this many times. And I'm going to butcher the quote. Scott can get it right. Wayne Barber discipled us by video for years, me and Chris and Ellison and Scott. And I heard him preach one time. And Scott, and we, we quote it all the time. He says, when I look in the mirror in the morning, I look at the thing. The, what's the, exactly, Scott, what is it again? Yeah, I love that. When I look in the mirror every day, I see the biggest problem I'm going to have today. Because Satan is going to push my buttons. He is. It might be through your children. Anybody ever have a button pushed by your child? How about by your grandchildren? Now, not, this is not true for me, but I, some of you maybe. How about your spouse? My sweet wife is here today, and it's been a long time since um, she's been so sick. And even in the midst of all that, all that she's gone through, as hard as it's been, it's drawn us closer together because she's been so sick. God works good. Satan will find your button. He's not omniscient, but he watches you. He's going to find your button, and he's going to push it. He's going to push it again. Gonna push it again. He's gonna push it again. He just wants the church to spend more time looking and fighting inwardly and fighting with each other as opposed to loving the world and preaching the gospel. Amen. We gotta recognize our enemy. We have to resist our enemy. And then this last point I want to make, and this is the one that really, verse nine, and when I'm done. Knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Number four on your handout, or number three, whatever it is. This is, I think it's four. This is the one that really touches my heart. We share with believers of all time. Going back to the ascension, Jesus said, I'm going to be with you always. And what the early church went through, even down to today. In 2 Peter, Peter put it this way. You share like precious faith with us and us as the apostles. If you're born again, the faith that you share is the same faith that Peter, James, John, and the other disciples had. We share the faith. Not a faith, the faith. And one of the things we share is in suffering because we have an eternal perspective on everything, not a temporal one. I want to share a couple examples of that with you, and then we're going to close. These are true stories, and these are just a few. I could share hundreds. One of the best ways you could find on a personal level to be encouraged is you need to read biographies of Christian martyrs. Again, going back to the early church up through today. If you've never read The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom, 
You need to read that book. And then you're going to need to get on your hands and knees and thank God for that woman. Amen. Her testimony, her and her sister in a Nazi concentration camp, leading people to Jesus. How much they love the Lord. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, again, martyred in a Nazi concentration camp. Read his book, The Cost of Discipleship, or read about him. Jim Elliott, great martyr to the Orca Indians. And his wife turns around and goes back and witnesses it after they slaughtered her husband. Just a couple I want to read to you, true stories. Perpetua was a 26-year-old married woman with a little baby when soldiers dragged her from her home in Africa. She was seized for being a Christian. Her father came to visit her and tried to persuade her to renounce Christ. She refused. Her father beat her severely. She was brought into court in order to sacrifice to idols. She refused. The court took her baby from her and threw her into a dungeon. When she was again brought before the court, the judge begged her to think of her father and her baby and renounce Jesus. She refused. The judge condemned her to death. Perpetua was thrown into an arena with wild animals. The animals mauled but did not kill her. So a soldier finished her off with his sword. Perpetua died in March of 205 A.D. after three years being imprisoned. On October 6, 1536, William Tyndale was strangled and then burned at the stake. His crime? Translating the Bible into English so that the common people of his country might be able to read it. Last one. Chet Bitterman worked for Wycliffe Bible Translators. It was a missionary organization committed to translating the Bible into obscure native languages, tongues. After completing his studies, Chet asked to be sent to Columbia. He traveled to Loma Linda Center in Columbia with his wife and children to await assignment. He wanted to work with a small tribe called the Carjones. One afternoon in 1960, excuse me, 1980, a jeep carrying guerrillas from the Marxist group M19 pulled up in front of Loma Linda Center. They believed the center to be a CIA front for Yankee imperialism. They took Chet hostage, demanding that Wycliffe leave Columbia or face Chet's execution. Chet was able to get a message out to his wife. He told her that the important work of translating God's word into native dialects must continue. His family agreed that the demands of the guerrillas must not be met. A little over a month after Chet was taken prisoner, the guerrillas drove a stolen bus into town with a drugged Chet handcuffed between the seats. They shot him in the chest and deserted the bus containing his body. As a result of this incident, public opinion in Colombia turned to support Wycliffe. A previously hostile press condemned the actions of the guerrillas. Two years after Chet's death, a man came to talk to a priest in a church south of Bogota, Colombia. He asked about and received salvation. He had heard a man pray for him and quote scripture, a man he had been guarding as a prisoner. That man was Chet Bitterman. Wherever you find yourself and whatever you're going through, God says, you trust me. And live your life to glorify me. And you'll never know. Chet Bitterman never knew about this guy, did he? But he met him in heaven. Because he was true to his faith. Would you bow your heads, please? Father, as we close out our time together, as Marcus and worship team leads us, I simply pray we would take the next few moments and just reflect, how do we live? In the meantime, until Jesus comes back, how do we live?
that each one of us at our seat, whether we're standing, sitting, kneeling, whatever we choose to do, some may want to come to the altar and pray. Just during the time of this song, spend it reflecting on my personal life. Am I a servant? Am I willing to serve? Am I serious about my faith? How do we live in the meantime? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.